Friends can be pretty incredible in your life, can't they? A couple quotes that I wanted to share as we get started about friendships and friends like these. Sometimes your circle decreases in size, but it increases in value. That happened for, for this guy. Another, uh, best friends are people who make your problems their problems, just so you don't have to go through them alone. Have you experienced a friend like that or friends like that? I know I have. In the most painful times in my life, uh, back a little more than 10 years ago when my life fell apart around me, <clears throat> I remember five people who came alongside of me and who walked a journey with me that was dark and dangerous and hard. And, and two, of them were some, two of them I would have predicted, two of them I would have never predicted before that would have come alongside and walked a journey. Some I thought would, didn't. Um, but friends who come and walk a journey, like this guy who was paralyzed and they wanted to bring him to Jesus, are incredible they go to such extremes, encouraging, listening, spending time with you, advocating for you, being bold enough to challenge you when you're not thinking clearly or when you're not really thinking straight. This is the group of friends that this guy in Mark chapter 2 had. So if you want to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, I'm not going to read the whole passage for you. The, the clip that we just saw walked through much of what is in this section but I want to walk through this story today and glean some spiritual lessons that we can apply in our own lives. Uh, Jesus had spent some time away from Capernaum, where he had set up in the, early in the Gospel of Mark his base of operation for ministry. We don't know where he went or uh, how, much, how long he was gone. But he came back to Capernaum, and he's teaching in this house. Now, he's not teaching in the streets. It, it looks like by this time there was a lot of uh, publicity about what Jesus was doing, and people were coming to him more to watch the sideshow than to hear the meat of what he was saying. So maybe he said, let's go into this house, and we're going to teach there and, and keep away some of the crowd. But people gathered around, and so many so that they, they packed the house and couldn't even get in, which is an amazing thing, isn't it, to think about that? Um, it's, it ha it's happened in other times and epochs in church history. About a dozen years ago, my wife and I went to uh, Great Britain for a month, and I visited St. Peter's Church in Dundee, Scotland, where Robert Murray McShane preached in the 19th century. And during the highlight of this revival that was spreading throughout Scotland, he would have preachers come, and they would start preaching in the morning in his church, preach all the way through the evening, nonstop. People would just step in the pulpit preaching, and the place was so packed, and people wanted to hear, but they couldn't get in, so they opened the windows, and people would just stand around outside of this little church in Dundee, Scotland, hoping to hear something of the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's amazing, isn't it? Uh, sometimes I think we've lost the, the urgency. We get used to empty seats, not, wow, what would happen if people couldn't get in the building to hear the story of what God brings, the hope that God brings to us. So we don't know where these guys came from or how long they'd been traveling, but four men showed up while Jesus was teaching, and they were bringing their friend. Uh, picture these guys. They cared for their friend. They'd been with him. They probably had tried all kinds of ways to get the help he needed. Uh, maybe they knew of an injury that he had that caused his paralysis. Maybe he'd been paralyzed from birth, and they just walked with him and become his friends. But these are the people who were closest to him. One of them must have heard, or maybe some of them heard about Jesus, or maybe heard Jesus teaching. 
and the reputation that Jesus had uh, of not just a teacher with this authority like Don talked about last week, but who actually could, could do miracles, could heal the sick, could cast out demons, had power and authority that none of the other physicians and people that they'd gone to with their friend had. It's safe to say that maybe they'd exhausted a lot of other avenues and they're like, let's try one more thing. Let's take him to Jesus. So they agreed to carry their friend, and a mat at that time was really just a blanket that would keep someone from the cold ground. So they carried their friend. We don't know how long the journey was, but these four guys carried their friend to Jesus. They may have packed food, money, over-the-top dedication for him. Why? Because they believed that something incredible could happen if we could just get our friend in the presence of Jesus. That's why we do what we do. Uh, I'm the pastor of care, congregational care here, and when I talk to our care ministry leaders, we have a, a why statement of why we do what we do. I want to read for you. All of the care ministry here at First Free and all of ministry at First Free is based on this belief, and we go over it regularly. Only the power of Christ's redemptive work on the cross, only the power of Christ's redemptive work on the cross can provide freedom from brokenness, slavery and fear, guilt and shame, that if left to their own, would bring ruin and destruction. That's why we do what we do. Because only the power of Christ, that's the only thing that can bring the hope and healing and freedom, that if left to its own, would in my life and your life and the lives of people we care about, end in destruction and in devastation. Later in this story, we're going to see that Jesus saw in these friends and in this man something that we call great faith. Verse 4 tells us they couldn't get to Jesus because of the crowd. Very disappointed, and you've been there, um, looking forward to something. You need something. Uh, They probably had been talking all along the way on the journey of how cool this is going to be when we get to Jesus. And Jesus, we saw him before, he healed all kinds of people. And we get there, and now we can't even get in. And if it was like most of the groups that I've been involved in, you know, they're different people. So one of them maybe says, yeah, we tried. Let's go back home. Another one, wow, really sorry that we can't get you in to see Jesus. But I heard there's a really cool restaurant here in Capernaum, so let's make the best of a bad thing and figure something out. And then there's that one friend, isn't there? There's always that one friend. Hang on. Hang on. What if we, and you know, you almost want to say, no, 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 no. But this one friend who says, what if we climb the roof? And there always were steps leading up to the roof in a home in this era. And uh, what if we climb up on the roof and we put a hole in the roof and we just drop you down to Jesus? And like, that's crazy. But this is the friend whose crazy ideas sometimes work and sometimes show us what we can do. Let me stop right there and ask, is there anyone in your life that you're working this hard to bring to Jesus? Is there anyone in your life right now who you are willing to do the craziest thing? You're willing to push the envelope. You're willing to tear a hole in a roof to bring this person, maybe in prayer, maybe physically, maybe sharing your testimony, but you're, you're going to go as far as you can to get them in the presence of Jesus. Is that how we think as a church? Is that how we set up our ministries here? That on Sunday morning worship, we have room for people 
in our adult communities, in our small groups, in our youth ministry, in our children's ministry. We have room for people to bring their friends in extreme ways to come into the presence of Jesus so that they might find healing and wholeness and forgiveness and life that apart from Jesus is not available on this planet. Somehow they were so determined. So they climbed up on the roof. Roofs were made of clay and thatch and such. Uh, They had beams, so they probably walked across the beams and carefully carved out a hole to uh, drop their friend through. There's no way to avoid the dirt and the destruction down below. And if they were all crammed into this house, if you've ever tried to move when you're in a packed place, you know, and debris is falling on your head and what's happening here, and this man comes down in the middle of this room. He landed in front of Jesus, and Jesus saw something extraordinary. He didn't say, wow, what persistence you have, what determination What love for your friend? Although those were all real, what did he see? He saw their faith. He saw their faith. And I don't know, it may be a supernatural insight of Jesus. He certainly, as God incarnate, had that. But I don't know that it has to be that. I think he might have just seen Kind of like a, a doctor would see in, in someone, or a therapist would see in someone, or a, a prosecuting attorney would see in someone on the, on the dock, on the witness stand. Jesus saw in them something more than just, we're desperate. He saw in them, yeah, we might be desperate, but we actually trust and believe that you are the answer to our friend's dilemma. So Jesus followed up with a statement that sent shockwaves through the house. He declared that the man's sins were forgiven. He declared that the man's sins were forgiven. Jesus knew that the root problem in this man's life was sin. We don't know everything that Jesus might have considered to come to that conclusion. Uh, He obviously realized the most important thing that this man needed in his life was to be assured that he had a right relationship with God and that his sins had been forgiven. The physical cure that would come would rest on this spiritual cure. The physical cure would come resting upon this physical healing. Forgiveness, let's talk about that for just a minute. Forgiveness at its core is letting go. It's just releasing something that's owed. Forgiveness is releasing the right to hold someone accountable for something they did that hurt me or injured me. Forgiveness is releasing someone from punishment and guilt for the wrong that they did. Instead, forgiveness is saying, I will absorb that and let them go free. When it's extended between people, it's one of the most refreshing things in our relationship, isn't it? I love what Mark Twain wrote about forgiveness. He said, forgiveness is the fragrance that the violent leaves on the heel that crushes it. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is the fragrance that the violet leaves on the heel that crushes it. I'm letting you go from what you owe me from that hurt. The one forgiving doesn't minimize the hurt, doesn't say that didn't matter. In fact, it did matter but I'm going to release you. I'm going to forgive you and let you go. Between individuals, it's wonderful, and it's it's an amazing thing in our relationship. But guess what? I can't forgive someone for hurt they committed against you. 
I can't let someone go if they violated a contract with you. You have to do that. I can be compassionate toward them. I can be merciful. But I can't release them from that. If you think about it, what Jesus was doing here in relationship with God, and this is why the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were so upset with him, God's forgiveness has a scope that no human forgiveness can reach. So I can forgive someone who offends or hurts me, and I can be merciful to someone who forgives or hurts you, but God's the one who gets to forgive offenses against him, doesn't he? I don't think I have the the right or the prerogative or the authority to say, you are forgiven of your sins. God no longer holds that against you. That's a God thing. That's what Jesus did here. That's why the religious leaders were so upset. Jesus claimed for himself an authority that everyone knew only rested with God himself. To forgive injuries that we've received is a duty, and it shows a heart for reconciliation, and we always ought to be about reconciliation. But to forgive sins committed against God is something that only God can do. That's why in verses 6 and 7, the religious leaders were shocked. Judaism taught, and we would teach, that God forgives sins committed against him. Blasphemy is the word that they use. Blasphemy, it's a, it's a pretty big word, has a lot of, a lot of meaning uh, under the umbrella of blasphemy. But at its heart, it's bringing reproach onto God rather than honoring him. It's blasphemy. I'm bringing reproach to the name of God rather than honoring the name of God. And that's what they said Jesus was doing. Now, he was aware of their fears. In fact, let's jump in at uh, verse 8 chapter 2 of Mark. Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take your mat and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, And walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. So Jesus challenges them with attention. What they observed and what they were upset about was accurate. Jesus had forgiven this man's sins. But he challenged them. And in order to prove that he had the authority to release this man of the debt owed to God... He called on this man to get up and take his mat and walk. The pathway cleared and the man walked out. By demonstrating this power, Jesus vindicated his authority to forgive sins. Now this story is probably worth pausing for a minute because it gives us an opportunity to talk about the connection between illness and sin. The connection between physical maladies, physical illness and disease, and sin, disobedience to God. The biblical writers lived in what we would call a pre-scientific era. The Bible was not written to be a medical textbook. Even it wasn't written to be a geography textbook or a psychology textbook. The Bible was written to help us in our life connect with God, who is the God who oversees, who created, who, who supervises, and who sustains all of creation. In ancient times... And the, the Bible was written in ancient times, so the culture in ancient times 
physical illness was often ascribed to spiritual causes. They're very, very deeply connected. So, for example, in the Old Testament, we read often of infertility being, being uh, a situation where God is not happy with you. A physical issue with a spiritual connection. Not always does the Bible support everything it reports. And, and sometimes it is actually God working in this physical situation, but other times it's what the culture believed. Jesus, in fact, in, in John chapter 9, when asked by his disciples when they saw a blind man, the disciples said, who sinned that this man was born blind? His parents are him. And Jesus said, neither. This, this physical malady of the blindness in this situation is not the result of either sin of his parents or of him. It's a physical malady. Now, we can't afford to draw a hard line between specific sin and specific physical illness in every case. Um, Jesus here saw forgiveness of sin and physical healing as something that he could do and did and what was needed in this situation. But we can draw, and I think we should see, a spiritual dimension to everything in life, even physical illness, even, even situations that we're dealing with physically. So the person who worries, for example, is filled with anxiety uh, that leads to physical, emotional, relational problems, doesn't it? Now, the root of that physical or the root of that anxiety could be uh, fear. And sometimes we fear because we don't trust God and we don't understand who God is. And so there is a spiritual connection with a physical illness or a physical situation that we have. Or the sex addict who is driven by shame and lust power, which leads to a variety of physical, behavioral, and emotional problems. But the root cause of this sex addiction, which has physical manifestations and problems and behavioral problems and sin attached to it, also can be, I don't believe who I am in Christ, and so I'm seeking something, someone to tell me who I am, and so I crave something that's not what God would want me to crave. Or it could be as simple as when I go to my doctor sometimes for my annual physical, he said, you know, that cholesterol level is just right there. You may want to watch that. Well, it's a physical issue, but guess what? Some of the reasons I like to eat that bad food is because I'm really stressed right now and I need to deal with that stress. And there are better reasons, better places and ways to deal with that stress. And if I trusted God more and if I was walking in the path that God would have that, it may not be as hard for me. Are you following me? It's just, this, this is a relationship we need to get. And we mess up on it all the time as Christians, especially in the way we do, we do faith. It's how often have we sat down at a restaurant to eat and we have a bunch of food in front of us with little or no nutritional value? And what do we pray? God, use this to nourish our bodies. And it's like, someone says, it's like, it's like the high school kid after geography class, after taking the exam in geography class, saying, God, please make Detroit the capital of Michigan. Please make Detroit the capital of Michigan. Like, no, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Um, so my point is that we, we need to understand, I think actually understanding what we understand about science makes the spiritual component to health and healing even more amazing. That God can use the best of medical science and psychology and mental health professionals and nutritionists, and he can also do miracles and he can touch and he can bring supernatural healing. 
It's even more amazing when we look at it through what God has given to us. So that's a little bit of an aside, but I think it's important because we're going to keep running into this as we go through the Gospel of Mark, and we need to understand how they view this. I don't say, in short, that the confession of sin is the only answer to every problem, but I do say it's almost, part, it's almost always part of the answer. Me confessing my sin is almost always part of the answer. It may not be the only answer to every problem. So enough of that. Now take note that Jesus refers to himself in this section as the Son of Man. I think that's important to talk about as well. This is Jesus' favorite self-designation when he says the Son of Man has authority to forgive sin. In Matthew, over 30 times it's used. In Mark, 15 times. John uses it a dozen times. It always comes from Jesus' mouth. Sometimes other people attribute to him, but it's his favorite, seems like, term for himself. And it's about authority, what Don talked about last week, which is going to be a theme we we will see throughout this gospel. There are a few ideas of what Jesus is meaning when he talks about the Son of Man. Might be that he's a man, that he is God incarnate, so he is the Son of Man. He is the the man, the human being of all human beings. That, That very well might be. But there's another explanation that could be used here that would tie into the authority that Jesus has. And that goes back to Daniel chapter 7. Um, Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14 says, in my vision at night I looked up, so here's a prophecy from Daniel, and there before me was one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence, and he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power All peoples, nation, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. So Daniel uses this term son of man to talk about this authority, this apocalyptic authority that was going to come from God. In Mark chapter 12, verse 13, Jesus himself says, At that time, men will see the son of man coming in clouds with power and glory. See, Jesus is in this miracle of healing this paralytic is stating, this is the authority that I have. The authority to transform the human heart, to to bring wholeness to people. Physical, emotional, spiritual, relational, intellectual, wholeness to people. Jesus demonstrates over and over again that he's been given this authority and power Where illness, pain, and disappointment are linked to the reality of sin, we need Jesus. No meaningful, lasting healing can take place without that. Leonard Sweet said it this way, The healing forces of faith, hope, and love are not incidental to health and medicine. Read that again. The healing forces of faith, hope, and love are not incidental to health and medicine. Like an antibiotic... Faith, hope, and love enter the system quickly and do their work slowly. Curing or the removal of disease may take place within medical means alone. Curing or the removal of disease may take place within medical means alone. But healing, healing, the triumphal entry into one's total environment only takes place in partnership with faith takes place in partnership with faith. 
What Jesus is doing here in this first century is nothing that he can't do today and isn't doing today. He's joining what what God wants to do in bringing wholeness and healing, forgiveness of sin to us. Now, what are some lessons that we can take away from this passage? First, we need to come to Jesus for forgiveness and wholeness. And that doesn't mean when we come that every malady will be healed like it was with the paralytic. In fact, sometimes God glorifies himself in giving us grace to walk a path of suffering, to walk a path of brokenness, to walk a path of illness. But are we surrendered to his authority? Have we surrendered our choices? Have we surrendered our lives, our bodies, our spiritual lives, our relationships to him? Second lesson Are we encouraging those we love to find Jesus? Are we bringing them to him, either in prayer or conversation? Are we daring to be bold enough to bring people to Jesus for wholeness and healing? And then as I mentioned earlier, as a church, do we expect miracles to happen? Or do we think that God's going to do just a little bit better than we could do on our best day? Or do we expect that miracles happen, that lives are transformed, people are healed, relationships are restored, brokenness is put back together, people are mended, people who have debilitating illnesses are able to either find healing or to walk in faith in those? Do we believe that God can bring through Christ healing in people and wholeness? So do we think that way? Remember what Jesus said to these guys? He saw their faith. He saw their faith. Do we believe? Are we making room for people to enter our communities and experience healing and forgiveness? You know, one of the reasons why I think we don't do that is because it could be so misunderstood, can't it? It can be so misunderstood, and people could look at us as being really superstitious and really anti-intellectual. And what, what we've just talked about is, no, we are very, very aware of what God does and very aware of medical science and very aware of what happens in the Bible. And that makes God's miraculous healings even more wonderful when he touches us in these areas. And then we should pray for physical, emotional, mental healing for people. And we should pray that God brings wholeness to us and to the people that we love. Let me lead us in a prayer along these lines right now. Jesus, too often we come to you with the expectation and the hope that you will change our circumstances and relieve our pain. And we miss what's of ultimate importance to you, the best gift that you can give to us, which is forgiveness. Please heal our hearts Fix what is most broken in us before you deal with any painful or challenging circumstances that we may face. With hearts united to God through forgiveness, many of us are hurting. There's marital strife, addiction, disease, illness, disability, broken relationships all over in this room. And we come to you now because we do believe that you have all power and authority. We implore you to use that power and authority to alleviate suffering where it furthers the purpose of God. In other cases, grant us faith to walk closely with you through the pain. And either way, we believe you. We believe that you and you alone hold the authority to forgive sin and to heal. Amen.